Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So, last week, we celebrated the most significant event in all of human history. Where the penalty for sin was paid, the separation created by sin was removed, and where death was turned to life. The resurrection is our hope, our joy, our salvation, and the foundation for everything that we believe and everything that we are. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But last week, we didn't just celebrate the resurrection. We had an opportunity for response to those who were ready to declare that they wanted to surrender their life to Jesus and make a public declaration of faith that they belong to him, and it is no longer they who lives, but rather Jesus who lives in them, and 16 people were baptized. Come on, let's get 2,000 years after the resurrection, we see that it has lost none of its potency, that God is still moving, that he is still working, that he is still transforming hearts and changing minds through the power of the gospel and the word. 2,000 years later, we still see people giving their lives to Jesus in response to their recognition of all he has done for them. And every time someone makes that profession, every time someone surrenders their life to Jesus, the declaration that they're making is that Jesus is greater. Years ago, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was hanging out with a buddy of mine who ran all the tech ministry stuff for the church. And he gets a phone call. He talks for a couple of minutes and ends the call with, okay, honey, I love you. I'll see you soon. Naturally, I assume he's talking to his wife. A couple hours later, we head up to the church for the evening service. And the worship director walks over, chuckling, smacks him on the shoulder and says, man, I love you too. And then proceeds to, to tease him for the next 20 minutes. Apparently, my buddy had gotten so used to talking to his wife on the phone that he'd begun ending every conversation he had with, okay, honey, I love you, goodbye. <laughs> Sometimes in a conversation, it's important to know who you're talking to. All right, so we're going to stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that idea in just a minute because this week we are starting a brand new series called Jesus is Greater, where for the next eight months, we're going to study the book of Hebrews. Eight months and one book? What is wrong? That's so long. Why? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> the church, not our church, but the church exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the mission of Jesus. We are here to grow together in our knowledge of, love for, and commitment to Jesus. But everything that we do is predicated on one simple thing, worshiping Jesus, serving Jesus, following Jesus, glorifying Jesus. They all share a single prerequisite, and that is knowing Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 
It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the scariest verse in all of Scripture On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have people who perform miracles in the name of Jesus, who do supernatural things in the name of Jesus, great works and service in the name of Jesus, and yet they don't belong to Jesus? They don't get to go to heaven. They don't get to be with him. How is that possible? There are so many things that we can do in the name of Jesus while not even having a relationship with Jesus. John 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. Without that, we have nothing. Knowing him is so incredibly important because God is not some abstract reality or some ethereal thing. God is not a a fluid idea that we get to shape and mold based on our preferences or what we want him to be like or to me, God's like this or I think of God like that. God is not some spiritual concept that we get to philosophize about. God is a person to be known. And who he is is based on who he is, not on who we want him to be or claim that he is. And this is why the word is so important. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, the logos of God, is Jesus. So if we don't know the word, we don't know Jesus because Jesus is the word. You know what the greatest danger, the greatest issue and problem facing the church today is? More than sexuality, gender issues, persecution, politics, or inequality. Biblical illiteracy. The people of God do not know the word of God, and so they are worshiping an idea that is not actually the person of God. And it doesn't work Because you can't worship God if you don't really know who he is. And you can't know who he is if we don't know his word. The fundamental principle of the church, going back to the days of Jesus, one of its primary functions has been to study the scriptures together. Because here's the deal, I'm not up here to be some self-help guru giving you a spiritual version of a TED talk about how to live your best life now with a couple of scriptures ripped out of context and sprinkled over it to make sure it feels like a church service. As a pastor, my job is not to teach you how to seize the joy of every moment. It is to teach you about Jesus. And there's so many churches today that devote all of their time to making Jesus about us, and they've missed the the fundamental foundation of the gospel that we are called to be all about Jesus. 
See, I'm not a, I'm not a big phone person. I don't, I don't particularly care for it. If you want to get a hold of me, text me, email me, talk to me face to face. I don't want to talk on the phone. It's sort of like a form of torture for me. I hate it. But if I have to talk on the phone, the first thing I want to know is why. Why are you inflicting this suffering on me? Like, don't ask me about my day. Don't talk to me about the weather. Don't give me 20 minutes of torturous small talk. I can't understand what you're saying until I know why you're saying it. Okay? Like, are we just catching up because we're BFFs and nobody told me? Are you looking for something from me? Are you asking a question like, why are we talking? Because why always informs what? So let's do a little exercise this morning. I'm going to make a couple of statements. And if that statement is true for you, I want you to hold your hand way up in the air. You can do that. It's okay. It's not a silent auction. It's just a survey. All right? How, I would like to know the Bible better. If that applies to you. Hey! I'm very excited to see that. I try to re- just keep it up until a statement doesn't apply to you. All right? We're going to do a little hand exercise. I try to read it. I often struggle to read it because when I do, I feel lost and confused and I don't know what's going on. Okay, so keep your hands up if that's true for you and just take a second and look around. You're not alone in that struggle. Okay, now you can take a rest. Our pre-workout's over. (laughs) You know why it's so difficult for us to read and understand the Bible? Because we approach it unlike anything else in our lives. We read the Bible like it exists in a vacuum. We pick it up, we start reading, and we go, what is this? I don't know what's happening here. I'm super confused. And we get lost and we get frustrated. Because we try to get to the what without first understanding the why. All communication comes with background information. We call that context. Think of it like this. You get a text message from a number that you don't know. What's the first question you ask? Who this? Right? Why do you want to know that? Because how you receive the information is directly dependent on who that information is from. So naturally, in every aspect of our life, when we get information, we seek context. And yet our approach to Scripture is to try to ignore it. So, before we can get into the text, here's we're, we're in eight months of the book of Hebrews, week one, we're not even going to open the book of Hebrews. That'll be fun. Because before we can get into the text, we have to understand certain key principles about it. We have to set the stage with three very important questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? And why? So, Get out your pocket protectors, put your nerd hats on. Let's talk authorship. Yeah. Just me? Cool. That's awkward. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know? Well, this is off to a great start. We don't know who wrote the book. Of Hebrews. In fact, there are eight books. Of the 66 books that comprise the Bible, there are eight where the author is not clearly known or identified. Hebrews is the only one in the New Testament, which makes it the subject of a great deal of very, very nerdy debate, which we're going to get into this morning. You're welcome. 
What we do know is that the audience knew who the author was and had a close personal relationship with him. Hebrews is a very intimate, very personal, very pastoral letter. Now, tradition teaches us, I'm going to walk up here and use this board, that it was Paul. I mean, the dude wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If you're going to guess somebody, might as well guess him. Now, there are a couple of things about Hebrews that suggest it could be Paul. The, the theology is very similar to Paul's. The, the thinking and the reasoning style, very similar to Paul's. Problem is the writing style is completely different from Paul. Additionally, if Paul did write it, it would be the only letter where he doesn't identify himself, so that's kind of weird. There are a couple of details within the book of Hebrews itself that suggest probably not Paul. And then there's just this one tiny other little, it's really kind of a petty issue that I have with it, but based on the text of Hebrews, we reasonably conclude that it was written in 67 or 68 AD. Told you we were getting super nerdy, right? Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome in 64 AD. So personally, and I'm only speaking for myself here, I find writing a letter to be much more difficult post-beheading, okay? So just not something that I'm, I'm great at. So Paul's not a great candidate. Then we have Peter, because why not? He's a name everybody knows. Peter is suggested in part because of the supposed original audience was believed to be Jewish Christians living in Rome. Tradition teaches us that Peter founded the church in Rome and was its first pastor, so that kind of plays really well together. There's two kind of problems with Peter. The first is that there's nothing in his biography or any of his other writing that suggests he's capable of writing a book as eloquent and well-written as Hebrews is. Peter's very gifted. I'm not knocking his communication. He just doesn't speak this way, and there's nothing that suggests he does. Additionally, Peter was crucified upside down by Emperor Nero in Rome in, in 64 AD. So we kind of come back to that same problem with Paul. Hard to write it when you're dead. Peter, not a great candidate. Most likely, the candidate for who wrote the book of Hebrews would be somebody who spent time with Paul, which would explain why the theology and reasoning were so similar, but the style is so different. And that leads us to four primary candidates. Let's see if I can spell them. Barnabas, who is called the son of encouragement, we see him in Acts 2, Acts 4. He is the guy responsible ultimately for Paul's ministry success. None of the other disciples are ready to trust Paul when he has his conversion. Barnabas goes and gets him, puts his life on the line, trusting that Paul is uh, converted. He is a, a man of sacrifice, service. He's very selfless. We need more people like Barnabas. Then you have Silas, who's one of Paul's primary disciples. Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and a guy named Apollos. Barnabas is unlikely because Barnabas is not in any way expressed or seen to be a gifted communicator or speaker, which the author of Hebrews clearly is. Very early on, after he goes to get Paul and travels with Paul on missionary journeys, Barnabas is replaced as the most significant person. He's probably not a gifted teacher or communicator. Really amazing guy, but Probably not the author of Hebrews. Silas, one of Paul's disciples, we really don't know much about him, so kind of an argument from silence, not a lot of strength there, but the problem with Silas is he was around a lot of the things that happened in Scripture, and we don't know anything about him, which suggests that he didn't really do or contribute anything significant to what was going on, so probably not a great communicator or speaker. Then you have Luke. 
Finally, someone who is capable of beautiful, eloquent writing that goes into what the book of Hebrews is. It is a masterfully crafted letter. Luke can do that. There's one problem with Luke. Luke's a Gentile. And what we see in the book of Luke and the book of Acts is that he doesn't have any particular interest in Jewish traditions or customs, which the author of Hebrews clearly does. The author of Hebrews demonstrates a knowledge, an understanding, and an appreciation for the traditions of the Jewish faith that would be very similar to someone who grew up in it and knew it well. So Luke is not really a great candidate either. You get guys like Clement of Alexandria who will suggest that Paul wrote it and then Luke translated it. Still hard to write a letter when you're dead. Also hard to translate. Have you ever read something that's been translated from another language? It's never pretty, right? All the, the, the quality and the beauty that goes into the original writing doesn't transfer over very well. So that's not really, sorry, Clement, you, you're a little off on that one. And that takes us to Apollos, who we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. Apollos was with Paul in Corinth, so he has that Pauline influence. He was known to be an eloquent communicator. He was well-versed in scripture. He grew up as a Jew, so he would understand the culture. And as a little bonus, he's from Alexandria, which is the ancient education capital of the ancient world and home to one of the greatest libraries in history. So I can't prove this, and you can't prove me wrong. My suspicion is that the author is Apollos. Now, of course, it could always be some random person who's mentioned once and we don't know anything about him, or someone who's not mentioned at all, but based on what we know, Apollos seems like as good a candidate as any. Which leads us to, who is the book of Hebrews written to? We don't know? <laughs> this is going great. Could be Christians in Rome, could be Greece, could be about a dozen other places that have been suggested. We just don't know. Which begs the question, why are you spending so much time on background for a book we don't have any knowledge of these stupid questions that you're asking? Number one, the Bible is God's love letter to us. If you were separated from your spouse for decades and they had written you a love letter, wouldn't you pour over every detail? trying to understand every little aspect of it to the best of your ability. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. The better we understand it, the better we know him. Seeking and striving to understand, even when some of these questions are shrouded in mystery, is always a worthy pursuit. But number two, and more importantly, what we do know about the audience is more important than what we don't. We don't know where they're from. We do know that they are Jewish Christians who are struggling with their faith. And this is where it starts to connect. It starts to relate and make a difference in our lives. This is where it helps us understand why. See, the Roman government, when they conquered a people to reduce the risk of riot and revolt, would allow the people to maintain a majority, if not all, of their customs and religions. So any religion that existed when a people was conquered was protected under Roman rule. However, it was illegal under the Roman law to start a new religion. 
Well, when Christianity began, all the original converts were Jews, and they all continued to practice all the customs and traditions of Judaism. So most people believed that Christianity at the start was just a weird form of Judaism. By 60 AD, it's very clear that it's not, that Christianity and, Jewish, and the Jewish faith are very different faiths, and so the Roman government begins to persecute and prosecute Christians. So what you have here are a group of people who believe in Jesus, but Jesus has not done what they have expected. Anybody relate to that? You come to Jesus, you give your life to him, you have an expectation for how that's going to go, and it doesn't always go that way. Right? They believe, when they believed in Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, Jesus says, I'm coming back. And they thought that meant soon, like in their lifetime. And then that generation of Christians died off. Now we're on a second generation of Christians. Jesus still hasn't come back. It's been 30 years, and they're starting to wonder if they missed something. Because Jesus was supposed to fix stuff. Jesus was supposed to make things better, but it seems like they're just getting worse. Because these are people who have been cast out of their homes. They lost their land, their wealth, their income, their community, many of them, their families. Because when they became Christians, if their family didn't convert with them, they would disown them. In fact, there are parts of the world today where if you become a Christian, your family will hold a funeral service for you while you are still alive. Because to them, you're dead. They have lost so much, sacrificed so much for Jesus. And it's more than they expected. And then... You have the government coming in and starting to persecute them on top of that where they're facing imprisonment, beating, and even death. And they're starting to think, maybe I should just go back. It was easier before. It was simpler. Everything was neater and safer and more comfortable. Maybe I should just go back. Give up on this Jesus thing. It's too much work. It's too hard. I just don't see how it's going to work. Hebrews was written to address a very real, very urgent issue that is just as impactful today as it was 2,000 years ago. Spiritual fatigue. You have a people, and they're tired. They're tired of following the rules. They're tired of going through the motions. They're tired of serving and sacrificing and waiting and hoping for something that still hasn't come. They're tired of the pain. They're tired of the darkness. They're tired of the struggle. And they're just starting to wonder. Doubt has started to creep into their lives. And they're wondering, is it really worth it? Is Jesus worth all of this? Anybody relate to that? Have those times, those seasons where you just can't figure out how to get through it. Following Jesus is difficult. It brings challenges, hardships. And there's a temptation, a very real temptation that we face to just step back, to just avoid the conflict, avoid the tension, avoid the struggle. Because it's too hard. It's too painful. And it'd be easier to just let go. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who are struggling to hold on to their faith amidst a world of ever-growing 
chaos. That sound familiar to anyone else? Life was getting out of control. Their struggles were getting out of control. They just, what are we doing here? They were discouraged. But here's a little project for you. I want you to go through the Bible, and I want you to find someone that was used by God that didn't first go through a period of struggle or hardship. Go ahead. I'll wait. No, I'm kidding. That'll take forever. John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Struggle is not a possibility. It's not a probability. It is a guarantee from Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you will have struggle. And Jesus says, hey, life's going to be hard for you, and I tell you that so that you'll have peace. I'm sitting there like, how how does that give us peace, Jesus? Can you like I sit up here and I say, hey, tomorrow is going to be horrible for you. Don't worry. Like, I wasn't going to tell you said that. Thanks. We have peace in struggles, in troubles, and in trials because Jesus gives us in him a hope and a promise that goes beyond this world. See, what we have in Hebrews, Hebrews is this beautiful book of comparison. It's a challenging book, which is why most places try not to talk about it for eight months. But it's an important book that tells us over and over and over again about the superiority of Jesus. So if you're worn out, if you're tired, if you're lost and struggling and you don't know what to do and you don't know where to go and you don't know how you're going to make it through, Hebrews has something for you. A simple, life-changing remedy to the struggle that you face. Stop looking at the things around you. Stop looking at the world around you. Stop looking at the problems and the pain and the struggles and the storms. Stop focusing on the what-ifs and the worries and the fears and focus on Jesus because Jesus is greater. And some of you are here and you've been, kind of your whole life has been this series of struggles around the same thing and you believe it's because you are stuck. You're not stuck. You're just sitting in it. And the reason you keep going around that same loop and having those same struggles is because you continue to hold the same focus. You want to change your circumstances. You want to change your situation. You want to change your life. Change your focus. The message of Hebrews is change your focus, change your life. Focus on something greater. In my office, I have pictures of my wife and son. It is not because I'm afraid that after a long day, I'm going to forget what they look like. Okay? I'm dumb. I'm not that dumb. It's because after a long day, after a frustrating time or a time that things don't go well and I get exhausted, looking at them changes my attitude. Seeing their faces in a picture Reminds me that there's more than the thing that I'm looking at. There's more than what I'm dealing with at this moment. That life is bigger than this one thing. There are people in this world that even if I screwed something up and I'm getting yelled at by everybody and I'm getting all the angry emails because why are we talking about Hebrews so long and do it? Even if all that goes on, look at them. Reminds me there's people that love me for me. 
Not because of how I perform. Because of who I am. And changing that perspective changes my attitude. And allows me to endure and push through the struggles as they come along. You want to change your life, change your focus. And Hebrews says, Jesus is greater. So focus on him. Whatever else you would turn to, whatever else you would look at, whatever else you would focus on, Jesus is greater. Whatever else you would desire and pursue and long for, Jesus is greater. Whatever else you would prioritize, invest in, and live for, Jesus is greater. He's greater than your problems. He's greater than your pain. He's greater than your struggles and your doubts and your fears. No matter what it is, Jesus is greater. The pains and the struggles of this life seem overwhelming because they become the only thing that we can see. And the reminder that we need to endure is that Jesus is greater. Your marriage struggles, Jesus is greater. Your financial problems, Jesus is greater. Your self-doubt, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than that thing you think defines you and holds you prisoner. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than your failures. He's greater than your shame. It doesn't matter what you put in the box. When you compare it to Jesus, the answer is always the same. It's that Jesus is greater. And this book is so important for us for the same reason a runner running the race remembers why he's running. Because when his lungs start to burn and there's pain and cramping in his side and his muscles ache, he continues to run not because he loves the pain but because he remembers why he's running. The why gives us the strength to endure when the what is happening around us isn't going the way we want it to. Why do we hold on to Jesus when it gets difficult? Because he is greater than whatever we would turn to in his stead. All the pleasures of this world, he is greater. The comforts that this life offers, he is greater. There is nothing that you can find that is greater than him. So even in the trials, hold on. Because he is worthy. He is worth it. He is greater. So what we need in these times, in the hardships and the struggles of our life, it's not a cheap fix. It's not a miracle cure. It's not an empty platitude. It's a reminder of why. When we focus on Jesus, in him we find our peace, our hope, our joy and our life, not magically, but by focusing on him. And the more you focus on Jesus, the more you experience the peace of Jesus. The more you focus on Jesus, the more you find your hope in Jesus. The more you focus on Jesus, the more you find the joy of the fullness of life that only he can give. And the more we focus on him, the more all the things of the world fade around us. And so the simple remedy to all of life's struggles Focus on Jesus because he is greater. And the key to letting go of all those things that hold on to you is reminding yourself of that.
whatever you walked in here with this morning, Jesus is greater. So focus on him. And it'll change how you see the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are. We praise you for the life that you give. That you sent your son to live, to suffer, and to die for us. That we could overcome this world because he overcome the world for us. That we could have life because he gave life. God, I pray that you would help remind us every single day that we could preach this truth into our lives. That the mission of our hearts would be to remember and to focus on the greatness that is Jesus. And then so doing, we would find the strength to endure and the courage to carry out the mission that you have given to us. Give us that fresh wind, that breath of your spirit that ignites the life within us, that we may live as examples of the greatness of who you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.